Welcome to Hacked in the Dark, a podcast featuring Forged in the Dark games and their designers. I'm Ian. And I'm Jacob. And we'll be your host for today's episode on Narrative Authority. Today, we sit down with our guest, Adam Bucheri, to talk about Enter the Survival Horror. Welcome, Adam. Uh, thank you. Great to be here. So to get straight down to it, can you tell us about your origin story and what got you into design? Sure. Yeah, I've been designing games for about five years-ish. I had a co-worker at my place of employment who was very passionate about board games specifically, and he would invite me to playtest various versions of his games, which would change dramatically between each iteration. And that was like kind of the foot in the door of like starting to think about board games as like a real hobby, you know? Game design is something that's always kind of vaguely interested me, but that was a real concrete method of just seeing someone going through the process of design. That inspired me to start thinking about my own game design ideas, which uh, had its inception with me replaying Final Fantasy IX, and that game has a card minigame, which is so esoteric and nonsensical that no human being could ever actually play it in person. And it made me think about, well, is there a version of this game that could be played by people? Uh, and that <laughs> ended up leading to my first real game, Wicked Simple. I assume that name is ironic. <laughs> uh, no, it's not. It's, it's okay. completely sincere. Uh, it is a game to be taught in about five to ten minutes, you know, uh, my pitch is that if you play one game with me, you understand the rules and we'll be able to, you know, keep it all in your head. Okay. It's a, a breezy, casual strategy game for two to four players. Uh, I think it's good. <laughs> At any rate, um, that was like kind of my initial game design journey. And then when I looked back, I realized that I had kind of been designing games for a lot longer than that without really thinking about it. And so when the pandemic came around and there was a lot of time on my hands, that was when I poured several years of pent up frustrations with Dungeons and Dragons rules into my first micro RPG, uh, which was called Harrowing. And that was me really starting to take tabletop RPG game design seriously. And I, Love it, and I'm very passionate about it now. What was Harrowing about? Harrowing has a lot of uh, design similarities with Enter the Survival Horror. It is a crunchy one-page RPG, one-page front and back, that is about tight resources, difficult choices, and it is diceless. So it is a game where there's no random elements at all. It's only about making trade-offs cool that sounds brutal as intended so i've seen you around in the discord a bunch asking for advice and stuff for uh, enter the survival horror what brought you to want to make a forged in the dark game next for forged in the dark specifically i think i have a similar origin story to many hacked in the dark designers where i got into fifth edition uh dungeons and dragons around when it came out my entry point was the monster manual, just a big, beautiful book full of creatures. And how can I resist that? But after several years of running it, I just had some mechanical frustrations that I didn't know what to do with. Understandably. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I started, you know, basically branching out and reading as many 
game systems as possible, and then just introducing those elements into 5th edition. And, mm -hmm. you know, ultimately it got to the point where my game was almost unrecognizable because I had hacked so many things into it. And when I discovered Blades in the Dark, um, specifically position and effect unlocked something for me and just really made me feel like there was a better way to play. And so at, after that point, you know, Blades in the Dark uh, and the entire Forge in the Dark rule set and mindset uh, started taking over all of my design ideas. So I know you're pretty active on the Hacked in the Dark Discord, and you've also got a Discord for Enter the Survival Horror. What role has community played in your work? So for me, primarily, you know, the community that I discovered with the Hacked in the Dark Discord is the one that I had finally been looking for. When I started really hacking games, I was playing 5th edition at the time, and I was incorporating these elements from Fate and from Blades in the Dark and my own homebrew systems, and trying to challenge the core assumptions of the games. And I was looking for a community that would yes and me, that would see what I was intending and you know, try to, to encourage me even if I was really playing with the box of the design space. But so many of those design spaces are fairly conservative. You know, they they really embrace the core assumption of that game. And the Blades in the Dark Discord was the first community that I found where if you wanted to really just shatter the game and just play around with the pieces, they were into it. They were the ones who were going to give you great advice and play in the possibility space and really make you feel like you could design something that was inspired by it, but that ended up being unique. The Hack to the Dark Discord, uh, I think without question, is my favorite online community just for how smart and creative and welcoming they have been, especially for people who are really trying to break the mold and go in weird directions. Yeah, that's definitely been my experience too. <laughs> definitely. So you heard it here, folks. Hacks in the Dark Discord is lots of fun. Great community. Come check it out. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous community. So let's get to talking about Enter the Survival Horror a bit. Uh, what is it about? So the pitch is that Enter the Survival Horror is a game about dark corridors, deadly creatures, dwindling resources, and impending doom. It is a game that is explicitly inspired by the survival horror video game classics like Resident Evil and Silent Hill, but also films like The Mist or Alien. They are games about being regular people in situations where you are deeply over your head, dealing with impossible odds, and surviving by the skin of your teeth. I feel it's very important to have both of those aspects, survival and horror, in the game in order to really capture not just the tension of a terrifying situation, but the mechanical tension of wondering if you are going to be able to get out of the situation. Yeah, I have to say, of all the games that I've heard of, the name of this game certainly tells me what kind of game it is more explicitly <laughs> than most. It is uh, not shy about its influences. <laughs> How then do you make your game about survival horror? 
What what about the game makes it about survival horror? So for me, the crux of survival horror is the tension between fight and flight. You know, it is the feeling of knowing that you have to push forward while not wanting to, and then forcing yourself to anyways. In that regard, there are a couple of mechanical systems that are about that. But also, it's just there is a heavy combat focus on the game, and there's a heavy equipment focus in the game. So I assume then you took the what in the Discord we've called the quantum load of Blades in the Dark then and changed that to be more limited, I guess, I would, I would assume, for survival aspects. Yeah, so with the heavy focus on inventory... Enter the Survival Horror, I think, almost skews closer to an OSR experience. And actually, it's it's fitting that I have Ian on the call here, because I would say that it would almost be fair to call Enter the Survival Horror a Death Wish hack rather than a Blaze of the Dark hack, because there's so much of the mechanical aspects and the combat aspects that have inspired me from death wish well that's cool to hear i, I definitely consider death wish a bit of a uh, band of blades hack really because that's where i got a lot of the the mechanics about like threat so probably mm. drawing some dna from that as well probably but specifically in like the lethality of combat the way that monsters work the uh if i may say brilliant uh, focus system for monsters. Absolutely love that. That was a moment for me when I heard you talk about that on the, the podcast. So the way that this game works is this is a more authored experience than Blades in the Dark, which is so improv heavy, which is so fluid. It, it, this lends itself to the dungeon in a way that I think that most Forged in the Dark, dark games do not, which is something that I personally... Uh, have always loved, you know. A good dungeon is something that I find very memorable and exciting. And as part of the genre, like mastering a space is part of the the power curve, where it's not just about like progressing the character, it's also about understanding the location and gaining mastery over that. Yeah, as a GM, I really enjoy the the authored experience you can make if you really do put a lot of prep into a location and an encounter and uh, all the ways that the players can interact with it. Mm -hmm. So with the uh, bringing it back to the inventory system, it's slightly flipped on its head where uh, the quantum inventory of Blades in the Dark says that you have a certain load and when you get into a situation you can declare an item that you have. With this you have a defined inventory on your character sheet where you list out each item and its tier, which is the catch-all term for the power and quality of the item, but also the tags, which describe what the item does. Those are descriptive, not prescriptive. You know, If you are going on and you're like, oh, this might be a relevant tag, you simply add it to the item because it is relevant to the situation. And then also the load. And basically the concern is you don't want to be carrying too much because then you'll become overburdened. 
But the the way that the inventory system is flipped is the central mechanic is uh, lucky find. So in a traditional dungeon, you know, the GM often has to spend a lot of time determining, oh, okay, what loot is here? You know, what's something that might be interesting to find? And then they populate the dungeon with everything that they might need. Oh, we might need some health potions. Oh, we might need, you know, uh, a cool weapon to put here. As much as I enjoy items and stuff in more traditional dungeon crawling games, as a GM, having to come up with every single item that's everywhere and what they're going to need and everything is so tiring. It, it can be very fatiguing and also, I don't know, I, it, it's not a part of the experience that I personally enjoy designing. Right. And so for this game, I put the power into the player's hands. So with the Lucky Find system, uh, players are able to declare the items that they find. So... You know, they are poking around a room, they look under a bed, the GM decides that, yes, there should be something interesting here. And the, they are able to tell the players that they get a lucky find, which means that they are able to decide, oh, this is exactly the thing that I was looking for. You know, here's some batteries for a flashlight, here's some ammunition for a handgun, here's some whatever. So not quite quantum load, but the players still get sort of a, a the authority to narrate what kind of equipment they're their character will use yes it's not quantum load it's quantum discoveries right that's really cool you know so much of horror media is about is about like these lucky finds where they're in a situation and they look over and then there that's it that's exactly what i need and this is my way of simulating that you know instead of me authoring it and hoping that the perfect item is going to fall into their hands uh, I'm declaring it. Now, this seems like it might be overpowered. There are some limitations on it. When you get a lucky find, you can only ever find a tier one item, but multiple players can pool items together to find, instead of finding several smaller items, finding one significant item. Mm. And players are also able to spend uh, their luck, which luck is an interesting mechanic because I basically combined stress and experience so you earn it in the same way that you would earn experience but you spend it in the same way that you would spend stress when you say same way is that same from the frame of reference of uh, blades in the dark player where you get it when you roll desperate actions and at the end of the session there are many more ways to gain it those are two ways to do it you can also gain luck by inviting trouble for instance which is just the catch-all <laughs> version of you're watching a horror movie and someone does something stupid <laughs> and i think that that has a part in these kind of stories and so should be rewarded so if you're looking at your character sheet and you're like oh i'm almost able to get enough to you know get an extra point in a skill or almost able to advance my character in some way, and I just need to push it over. Well, you can just do something dumb. <laughs> and <laughs> it, it really fits like the thematic element of it. And in my experience, there's a lot of great fun to be had in that possibility space. Yeah, I love giving players the opportunity to make themselves trouble because so many will take it, and it, it's where all the fun is. Yes. One of the central design tenets of this game is to have players 
not realize how much trouble they're in. You know, it's, it's kind of baked into the mechanics that you should be like, oh, I'm fine. I can push my luck a little bit more. And then suddenly going, oh, no. <laughs> so where would you say uh, Enter the Survival Horror is in development? Enter the Survival Horror, I think, is coming to the tail end of its development. It has been updated in a couple months. I am doing uh, additional playtesting and also getting to be a player for the first time, which is wonderful. Uh, and that's giving me some new perspectives. But I'm just trying to figure out, you know, the last few things to massage. I would say it's it's quite close to version 1.0. And then also launching with version 1.0 will be the flagship adventure, The Mansion Incident, that will be bundled with the game. And I think that is going to be a tremendous amount of fun. Ian, have you ever gotten to play Deathwish? Because I've never been a player in Asphalt and Trouble. <laughs> uh, I have, actually. Yeah. Deathwish campaigns are broken up into fronts, and what we did is we ran a full campaign where each player uh, was the GM for one front, and oh, so we each got to got to take turns GMing, and we got to like be the GM for characters one time, and then fight alongside those characters the next front. That's cool. That was a good time. That makes sense. That sounds like it should be a default option almost for Deathwish if you had a group that was into it. Yeah. That'd be cool. Adam, back to you. Are you thinking of kickstarting or are you, what do you think you're going to do with it? I would love to have, you know, a bound version of it, but I think the game is actually quite small. If I wanted to include several adventures in the books, you know, I feel like maybe I could justify that kind of thing. But the core rules themselves uh, at this point, I think, are only 14 pages long, which... wow is nice and spelt, you know? <laughs> I, I like the streamlined nature to it. So publishing options, I don't know. Maybe I'll look into a zine at some point. Right now it's a digital, you know, uh, I, I'm selling the PDF on itch.io, but I don't have any major publishing plans uh, at the moment. So kind of leaning into our topic as well for this interview, the topic being, as we said, narrative authority, who gets to decide what basically? So how do you play with narrative authority and how does that affect the tone of Thrill Horror? Just, I can see, having not yet read it, that if the players have all of the narrative authority, I could see that cutting away some of the horror side. So how, how do you play with that and what do you do in Enter the Survival Horror? So the concept of narrative authority is something that I think is really interesting. And I think it says a lot about your game to look at where that authority lies. So when I talk about narrative authority, I talk about uh, what I'm talking about is like who gets to be the source of truth, who gets to decide what happens at the table. So just to clarify, so you're talking about who gets to decide in the fiction what ends up happening more than, for example, on Blades, there's a section that says the players get to decide this, the GM gets to decide this. So the players get to decide what type of action they're rolling and the GM gets to decide the position effect. So you're talking more narratively than mechanically, right? Yes, but they, to me, they dovetail quite significantly. Sure. Yeah, fiction first. So, you know, bring it back to my origin, Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition. The Dungeon Master is the sole voice of authority. They are the ultimate arbiter, and they get to decide everything that is true. Players can make suggestions, they can ask questions, but they can't actually truly affect the fiction in very many ways. And that's something that I think 
I want. I want to invite the players to have authority and ownership over the fiction as well. So for Blades in the Dark, you know, I think the flashback mechanic is an incredibly powerful tool for giving players narrative authority, where they are able to declare these situations and basically, you know, will these situations into existence. And it's on the game master to roll with it, to yes and the players. And how much authority any given game gives the players how much that is expressed mechanically. So for Enter the Survival Horror, a significant part of that authority that I give to the players is the lucky find. So there are no restrictions on it. The only uh, real restriction is it needs to be plausible in the fiction of the game. So I was running a game and the players were in this like, you know, sterile showroom and they were in a bad situation and needed a weapon, and one of them decided to use a lucky find to say that there is a machete in the room. And, you know, initially there was some pushback of like, that doesn't make sense here. And it's like, no, we get to decide why there is a machete in the room. And so, you know, we added, there was a body, they had uh, a weapon, and then we were able to construct a story around why this uh, item appeared. And by giving that to the players, it actually subtly but dramatically shifts the balance of power. Right, the balance of narrative authority. Another aspect of that narrative authority um, to me is to cause players to choose the consequences. For me, I, I tend to be a very kind game master i tend to rule in the player's favor i don't want to hurt any feelings and my solution to that in order to force myself to to set a harsher tone yeah correct in order to meet the tone that i'm trying to to achieve one of the mechanics in the game is the doom clock and the doom clock looms over the entire game it's always on the board and it's always ticking when the doom clock fills then uh, a terrible fate is chosen off of the Doom menu. The Doom menu is tailored to each specific game. So any adventure that you run, you're going to write a custom list of very bad things that can happen that are appropriate to the adventure. And part of that is there is a tension between who gets to choose off of the menu, who gets to choose the bad thing that happens. So depending on the circumstances, it is either going to be the GM or the players who get to pick off of it. And so naturally, the players want to have that control. They want to be the ones who are, you know, picking the least terrible option. But then when that time comes around and it's like, okay, we'll pick off of the Doom menu. You know, now they're debating about like, oh, should we be starving to death or should, you know... Should monsters become stronger? Yeah, there's no no easy choices. No. Well, there there are, but, you know, the easy choices are things like nothing bad happens now, but you can no longer have a moment of peace, which is this game's version of downtime, which is where you do your healing. So, mm -hmm. you know, 
oh, okay, we can do this, but are we sure that we can make it to the end of the adventure with the supplies that we have? Or another option off of the Doom menu is All for Naught, where nothing bad happens now, but at the end of the adventure, there is a bleak post-credits sequence, which I think you can, you know, immediately see how that dovetails into horror media, where mm -hmm. it seems like the heroes get away scot-free, and then at the very, very end, there's a cliffhanger, which segues into either a sequel or just brings down the mood of mm -hmm. the adventure itself. And so that is the player's purely uh, trading off mechanical advantage versus narrative authority, because if they don't choose that, they can narrate like a happier epilogue, but they would have to choose something that mechanically impacts them more, like starving, right? Correct. And so it's like, we can either know that we're going to, that something's going to go wrong at the end, or we can be unsure if we're going to be able to get out at all because we've chosen to make this harder for ourselves. I could see that bringing a more like tactical mind to the game, but also being really approachable for people who want to do more of the roleplay and the narrative and pick what makes sense in that situation or choose whether they really want to have a bleak or happy ending or that kind of thing. How often does the Doom Clock fill in a typical session or campaign so the way that enter the survival horror is structured it does have kind of an ideal length uh it's designed for approximately four to eight session adventures it's not particularly designed for ongoing campaign play it's designed for more isolated stories mm -hmm. and so within that the doom clock starts at its largest size. This is usually 12 ticks, but it might be smaller if you're running a shorter, more compact adventure. And then when it fills, the clock resets and then goes down in size. So it goes from being a 12 tick clock to a 10 tick clock to an eight tick clock. And so the pace of it uh, accelerates towards the end. And it really creates this great sense of you know, this looming countdown, this looming feeling of running out of time as you are trying to complete your, your final goal and escape. I know that both Asphalt and Trouble and Death Wish have also have uh, somewhat limited scopes of campaign, though I think Asphalt and Trouble might be the longest of the three. And I definitely like that. And the increasing, or the, I guess decreasing clock length definitely just in description makes me think horror. So that's very good. Yeah, building up towards a climax. Yeah, definitely. So coming back a little more to the, the general work of designing the game, are there any hurdles uh, that you tackled or uh, challenges you ran into that you would want to discuss? Maybe some tips for other designers running into similar issues? The current piece of design that I am slightly hung up on that doesn't feel quite perfect is that my version of downtime is called a moment of peace. And this is where the heroes, you know, lock themselves into a room, they bandage their wounds, and they have that little bit of banter between them where they connect emotionally. In many ways, it's similar to Lady Blackbird's refresh scenes where players are incentivized and gain a mechanical advantage for connecting with their other characters. And... I, th I feel like this is the correct structure for the game, but there are just a couple of like the mechanical incentives that I'm still fine-tuning the knobs on, particularly when it comes to the 
instinct system, which is uh, another mechanic that I haven't touched on yet. What is the instinct system? Why, thank you for asking. <laughs> the instinct system is similar to approaches or aspects, if you're familiar with Fate mm -hmm. or uh, games that play like that, where when you make an action roll, you choose an action, which is you know, similar to how Blades in the Dark or many other hacks work, but you are also choosing an instinct, which is like your approach. And instincts represent your character's mental health as well. And so you have a number of instincts. They come in pairs. They're kind of like two sides of a coin. So a character might have the instinct of loose cannon slash by the book and when they're doing fine, when they're healthy, they have both halves of that instinct. You know, they are flexible. They're able to you draw on either side of that. But one of the ways that you can take damage in the game is by losing instincts. And so if they are relying really heavily on loose cannon and then they lose that instinct, now they can't use that while taking actions and they have to think of different approaches. It changes how their character acts and reacts to the world so one of the uh, uh the design problems that i'm uh running into is just the specific way to recover those instincts during the moment of peace so it sounds kind of like the instinct harm almost is an adaptation almost or something like that of trauma where it's it's a redefining of your character in the moment it is that it's also explicitly inspired by the video game disco elysium where mm -hmm. it, it functions kind of like a diegetic hint system as well because the players are able to actually talk with their instincts and ask them for advice, which is a way for them to talk with the GM, but any information that they get will be filtered through the lens and the biases of this particular instinct. And so when you lose an instinct, you are losing a part of yourself in a, you know, somewhat literal way. Who decides which instinct is lost? Is it the player or the GM? That could depend upon the severity of the consequence. So if it is, you know, a minor consequence, then the GM may allow the player to choose an instinct that gets lost. But a more severe one, the GM may choose to uh, go straight for the one that they've been leaning on. And can the player resist that then? Yes, they can, by making a roll that will tick the Doom Clock. It sounds like you've given a lot more control in general to the players to decide, and in some situations, the GM. I guess what authority does the GM have? Obviously some, uh, the GM still exists, but what role then does the GM play as more and more of the authority gets handed to the players? The job of the GM is always to shape the story, you know, to, to create the to set the stage, so to speak, while the players get to choose what happens on that stage. All of the tools for the GM are about giving them ways to increase that tension, and the authority that's given to the players are various ways to decrease that tension, but at a cost, whether that be experience or being forced to tick the doom clock or something else. So for me, the question of player authority also comes down to narrative ownership 
a lot of the mechanics and the tools that are provided to them are there to put their fate in their own hands. So when a situation turns sour, they understand why it happened because they chose it off of the Doom menu. When a new threat appears, well, of course it did because they invited trouble. But in order to get out of it, they have the perfect tool for the job because they were able to declare a lucky find. All of these things make it feel like the players are the ones who are in control of the story. They're the ones who steered it in this direction. The Game Master may be the one who set the stage and is directing the flow of it, but the players have a lot of the ownership of what is happening to them from moment to moment, both good and bad. Yeah, I've definitely found that's essential in making it feel fair if you're going to have something terrible happen to the players. You've got to make sure that they feel like they own all of the uh, the events leading up to their doom. Absolutely. And one of my favorite tricks, and this is free advice for any game master, if you want to do something mean to the players, what you do is you give them two very bad options and then make them pick it because then when they're just like oh it feels bad because this terrible consequence happened it's like well you're the one who picked it <laughs> yeah and i feel like that leads into resistance to some extent as well did you change resistance or is that more or less the same yes because there's no stress in the game uh, the way that resistance works is that players are asked to make a doom roll, which is you roll a number of dice depending on your position. Uh, you know, the better your position, the more dice you're going to roll. And then the doom clock ticks the number of the lowest dice that is rolled. Mm -hmm. And so this can also add some really delicious tension when there's only, you know, Okay, there's three ticks left on the Doom Clock. If you can roll a two or lower, we can resist this consequence and it won't fill. But mm -hmm. if you go over, then... And that's all part of that risk and reward and ownership of it. Because if that clock fills, that's on you. Right, that's exactly what you're just saying. Like, the two options are whatever the current consequence is or the Doom Clock. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like a lot of these trade-offs are... Do you want a consequence now or a worse consequence later? Which is very similar to the, the design that goes into the survival horror video games like Resident Evil. Oh, you can save some ammo now, but next time you come through this area, that zombie will still be there, that sort of thing. Yeah, and, and that is specifically like a lot of the tension that I want to play with. Like, in most situations, you know, you can run away or avoid a situation at fairly little cost, unless something is really hounding you, you know, you can just choose to opt out. But then that area is dangerous and you're probably going to have to deal with it sooner or later. So is it better to regroup, come back later with a better strategy? Do you want to deal with it now and just absorb the, the consequences of it? Can you overcome it without filling the doom clock? You know, those kind of mechanical questions are a big part of the appeal to me. It's not enough to just have a scary situation. Like, those mechanical considerations make it so you feel it. So, 
There's a third role in narrative authority that I'm not sure if you think about it in these terms, but there's the players and there's the GM, but there's also the designer, the one who's writing the doom clock and the rules and so on. Uh, do you have any thoughts on the designer's part in narrative authority and enter the survival horror? I wouldn't describe the designer as having authority per se. That's more about, you know, finding the shape of the game. I very much believe that every game wants to be run in a certain way, you know, and certainly the games that I design are intended to be run a certain way. And part of the burden is on the GM and the players to understand, you know, what the game wants and to lean into it. So it's less authority and more of just a really good suggestion. It's less authority and it's more of this is the flow of the river, you know? Yes. Like, so the designer is saying you are in a haunted dungeon or whatever. You know, this is the tone that the game is. is What you do there and the actual layout, I guess the layout is up to the GM. And then what you do there and what exactly the consequences are then is up to the players. Do you address... What happens if there are disagreements? If different players think that different things should happen or the GM thinks that, that this is not the fun choice and, or something like that? In my experience running it, I, I don't think I've encountered that because in any given situation, the authority of the situation and, and who gets to decide that truth is fairly clear. You know, you, you are always going to have players who petition like, oh, but maybe this happens instead. And... You know, that is the the usual gray area that I think exists in all games where players are petitioning for a little bit more leeway or have a cool suggestion. And it's up to the GM to decide if that seems cool or flavorful or appropriate. But I think that largely the game has been successful as a machine that creates tension. Do you think then, as kind of more general advice on who gets narrative authority, it's valuable to explicitly say in certain situations? Yes, definitely. I think that for, again, Blades in the Dark, something like the quantum inventory is great because the GM doesn't get a say in it, you know? The player gets to declare that something is true and then the GM must adapt. For flashbacks, the players get to declare something is true, and that is explicit and textual within the game itself. Because I think it's very easy for games to just assume that the GM gets sole authority, that they are the only person who gets to decide what's true. And, you know, in the worst cases, that can create very passive players who just accept whatever happens. And I am very invested in getting active players who don't just want to accept the situation that's in front of them, but they want to grab the situation and make it their own. Yeah, that's very cool. And I've definitely seen passive players and it seems like a great solution for not necessarily like passive players are a bad thing, like players will play how they want to and that's good, but to help bring in players and make them not feel like they're at, like you said, the whims of the GM. Yeah, the action system is really interesting for how it makes those players get out of their comfort zone, too. Uh, if somebody's used to having turns, having to instead come up with actions that the, the enemies will only ever react to can be a, a very fresh perspective for them and can force them out of their comfort zone. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and definitely. I have always been a 
big believer in, you know, mechanics influence play, how you structure incentives, how you frame the the play itself. And so there are definitely people, there are definitely players who want to be passive players, who want to just enjoy the game as it happens to them. But I think in many cases, people are trained to be passive because they lack authority in the story. And so if you want to take that back seat, you know, you are able to. But giving players the tools to drive the car, so to speak, I think can also just train them to be more active, to be more engaged, to be more participatory. And for me, that's where a lot of the fun lies. So we're running up on time. Do you have any last suggestions for if a designer wants to play with or incorporate certain decisions of narrative authority? Any general suggestions or anything to be aware of or watch out for? I think that you can trust players with more authority than you think. You know, obviously, there's always going to be some room for players to use tools in ways they aren't intended or... You know, you, you can't design around degenerate play if there's going to be someone who's acting in bad faith. But if you've got a group of good players who are willing to engage the game on its terms and who want to participate, I think you can give them a lot of power and control. And for me as a GM, that's really liberating because that means it's less work for me. It's less preparation. And then mm-hmm. I get to be surprised and I get to go along with the flow. And for me, that's really a lot of the the essence of play to find out what happens. Yeah, that's really the joy of being the GM is seeing how the, the players introduce new complications into the scenario. Absolutely. So where can people find you in your game? If you want to purchase Enter the Survival Horror, it is available on my itch.io page. So you can find me at adam-bucheri.itch.io, which will feature Enter the Survival Horror, as well as a number of other games that I have made. Check them out. Some of them are weird. (laughs) And you can also follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash adambucheri. That is A-D-A-M. B-U-C-C-E-R-I. Awesome. I have been Jacob. You can find me and my stuff on jacobalso.itch.io, where you can find my big main game, Asphalt and Trouble, uh, about bikers in the climate apocalypse. And you can listen to my podcast episode about that. Justin interviewed me. You can also find me at Jacob Also on Twitter. And if you are curious about Asphalt and Trouble, we recently had... Uh, an actual play on the Hex in the Dark channel, which is now all up on YouTube. You can find it there for Asphalt and Trouble. And Ian was one of the players. Yeah, I've been Ian. And you can find pretty much all my stuff on my Twitter at Antifinity, A-N-T-I-F-I-N-I-T-Y. I've got Deathwish up there in a pinned tweet. Deathwish is good, you guys. (laughs) All right. Well, remember when it comes to design, we all begin our journeys as hacks in the dark. (laughs) 